This is Disaster Tales. Welcome to Disaster Tales, where we bring you interesting stories and personal experiences related to disasters and the issues that surround them. I'm Kate Fairweather. My co-host today is Barb Lonsky. All right, so today we're talking about the typhoid epidemic that hit Cornell University and in the city of Ithaca, New York in 1903. And my co-host is Barb Lonsky. Hey. Hello, I'm just a few miles from there right now. I live about 20 minutes north of Ithaca, so this is kind of close to home. So hopefully you're not sick. Um, so the... No, no. <laughs> they are cutting corn across the road, though, and it's making my eyes itch. But other than oh, that, no. I'm good. So the population of Ithaca in 1903-1904 was 13,136 people per the 1900 census. So it was a, it was a beginning community... Um, not a huge population, but when the college was in session, it was larger, obviously. The college is Cornell University. It's Ivy League. But there's also a secondary college in town, Ithaca College, which is mm-hmm. another large college. The, the population does swell quite a bit. It's a large part of the tax base, which has been an issue for the city uh, with this COVID-19 because the students haven't been at school. Yeah. That aside. So... <laughs> We've, we've, we've discovered over the years of, of, you know, the last couple of years of researching disasters and things like that, that many of the disasters that have been, uh, have occurred are the result of people pursuing riches and money, power or notoriety. The Ithaca typhoid ep- epidemic is an example of this particular um, motive. The elite and privileged of Ithaca around the turn of the 20th century can be directly linked to this disaster where one-tenth of the population of Ithaca was needlessly infected with typhoid fever and the loss of life of 82 people who died horrible, painful deaths um, was, was just not even necessary. 29 of those were young Cornell University students. The human and financial suffering caused by the greed of those elite associations who set this whole uh, thing up and the desire for power is evident throughout the history of this disaster. So first of all, why don't we talk about what typhoid is? That sounds like an excellent idea. Typhoid fever is a life-threatening disease of the intestinal system caused by the typhoid bacillus salmonella typhosa. So salmonella is a foodborne or waterborne illness, and this particular strain is called salmonella typhosa. It's spread by infected people who handle food or fluids without washing their hands, or when sewage is carried and the bacteria contaminates the water, the milk, or other foods in the immediate area around the water source. So it's definitely a, a, a preventable illness. So and, let me let me ask you a question um, then. Um, if it's if it's passed through milk, does that mean that the cows eat the contaminated water or drink the contaminated so the cows drink water? Yes, drink the contaminated water, and then it's excreted through their milk. Or is it because the contaminated water touches milk after it's been right? It's the direct contact with 
the milk or the food. It's the direct contact of the infected person or the infected water with the milk, with the food, you know, washing your utensils in, in water that's infected that would, you know, cause the milk to get contaminated because it's a growth medium. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't, it does not directly from the cow as infected as far as I know. Um, it's mostly just that additional bacteria added during the processing of the food or the, the liquid. So the symptoms of typhoid usually show up about two weeks after the initial infection. Mm-hmm. And it is usually a sore throat to begin with, a fever, a high fever, a headache, nausea, loss of appetite. Occasionally there's the presence of rose-colored spots on the skin. So it would be like a really uh, kind of a reddish uh, skin rash that occurs. The lesions are like the size of a dime. Yeah, like capillary. So that's from the capillaries breaking and having too many red blood cells in them. Is that right? Right. Okay. Which is, I, I... yeah, I think that would be the reason. Um, the, the thing is, it's interesting that the, the symptoms of this infection are very similar to the symptoms we're seeing with COVID. Mm-hmm. So the, the severe is the ones that um, cause like death or severe mortality. The people may go into a delirium and have hallucinations and, and delirious uh, things going on. And the bacteria that can invade the bloodstream, so it can also cause meningitis. The fever generally lasts for three to four weeks. That's a long time to have a fever. Yeah, so that then that means it, it permeates the blood-brain barrier? <laughs> yeah, right, the bacterial invasion into the, the blood-brain barrier. So, and that is like usually, that's usually a terminal situation. Mm-hmm. So um, the diagnosis is is done by knowledge of the method of trans of transmission so if you understand how it's transmitted it's easy to trace um and preventive care can be established and probably should have been established a little more quickly in ithaca when the outbreak occurred mm-hmm. it was known that the disease transmission was stopped by poor sanitation and hand washing and mm-hmm. clean water sources so there was needs, obviously, in those areas in, at that particular time. Some cities in the U.S. and most in Europe had safeguards in place, and compliance and oversight was not practiced in the U.S. the way it was in Europe. And so the mortality rates from those in- infected were high because the epidemic took place prior to the development of medicines to treat the infection. Mm-hmm. So the medication that is the medication of choice for typhoid is a drug called chloromycetin and it was the drug of choice for treating typhoid the compound is derived from streptomyces venezuela organism so it's a it's a part of the strep family in 1947 and it was manufactured in 1949 so this was beyond obviously the time when it would have been helpful for them to have it but it wasn't developed yet Mm -hmm. and that was the first time that they extracted a microorganism and created an antibiotic from the extracted microorganism. And of course, now that's widely used as the way of um, developing antibiotics. Well, that's interesting. So, yeah, it was definitely, it happened at a time before the medications were available. But as we go through, you'll see where 
it really wasn't even, it could have been prevented had there been some more proactive or less, um, I don't know, just dismissal of the epidemic itself. So the thing is that there was always water issues in the city of Ithaca from the very beginning because it is a community in a very low valley at the end of Cuga Lake and the hillsides around the lake is what actually houses Cornell University. So there's a, a high, um, high plateau above the city and to get water to that part of the city and to the campus was a real challenge. And so what they did was um, they would pump water from the creeks, excuse me, uh, but they were, they had hoped to lake source the water, but the lake was so contaminated because of, you know, sewage being dumped in it and things like that, that they weren't able to use the lake mm -hmm. as their source of water. So the city, uh, it's, it's, in, it's located, as I said, in a, in a valley, a deep valley at lake level. And then they have waterfalls and deep gorges at the end of the lake, which is 40 miles long. And it's about 435 feet deep at the deepest point. Um, so it became a, a area for shipping and lumber and things like that. They would bring things up from Pennsylvania and they had a, the Lehigh Valley Railroad system would bring it to Ithaca and then Ithaca would move it up the lake so that it could get up into upstate New York. All that mm -hmm. being said, they had a, a really population began to really grow in that area because of the industry, because of the school. And so they always struggle with adequate water, especially for the campus. Uh, the fraternity house, a fraternity house um, on the hill caught on fire in 1900 and the public outcry was just several people died in the fire because they weren't able to get water to the campus to be able to put the fire out. Ah. And so they did a temporary solution, which was to take water from Six Mile Creek and Buttermilk Creek, um, but the water was very muddy and it was very scarce. So a prominent business owner who we will recognize the name if you're at all familiar with Ithaca, named L.L. L. Treeman owned the Ithaca Water and Gas Company. And he fought with the city council about the, the issue of public ownership of the water rights and the utility. Um, many of the residences were using dug wells and the lake was not able to be used because of contamination. So in enters the, the beginning of the problem as far as where um, the water source was gonna come from. Cornell alumni, William T. Morris, he was the son of a wealthy statesman named Daniel Morris. And he was a friend and close classmate of L.L. Treeman's son, Eben. And so they kind of had this network of people where they helped each other and they would set each other up in business and they would finance each other. And he had made, Morris had made an inquiry into buying the Ithaca Water and Gas Company because he'd already purchased nine municipal utilities in Ohio and some in the surrounding area around Ithaca. Um, but they were hesitant to sell it to him because he was kind of a questionable character. Mm -hmm. He was a man of questionable character. <laughs> So some claimed that he was a narcissist. Um, I don't, wasn't there, I don't know. But he was investigated in his Penn Yan law practice due to claims that he defrauded some of his clients. 
by taking money for insurance down payments and purchasing linoleum for his office. And he remained under scrutiny in Penyan until the time that he moved to Ithaca. And then over the course of time through the death of L.L. Treman, he managed to acquire the waterworks. But he, um, the waterworks had been offered for sale to the city, but they didn't have the capital to do it. But somehow he came up with the money knowing a banker and some other local people who were able to help him finance. Mm, okay. So it was kind of a, the, the transgressions, there was a, a group of fraternity brothers, that, which included Morris, which included Treman, and the local banker, um, all of them were buddies, you know. Mm -hmm. So that became an issue for, for um, you know, graft and things like that. Mm -hmm. Because they were all helping each other out. So a year later, after the death of L.L. L. Treman, and of course Morris was there to, you know, be a friend and comfort his friend Evan and to help care for his mother and things like that. Um, the city's demand for better water caused Evan to decide to sell the utility. But he um, offered it for sale to the city on a few occasions for $100,000 and a guarantee of $250,000 in bond debt that the company owed. So we're talking $350,000 to buy this water utility company, which, you know, in that time, that's an awful lot of money. <laughs> it would be about... 10,300,000 today. And Morris really didn't have the resources, mm -hmm. but because of his connections with thing people, um, he did manage to raise it. A year later, after Treman, L.L. Treman's death, the, the elder Treman, Morris arrived at Evan's office and said he wanted to purchase the, the water and, and utilities. And he offered him the same $350,000 price. Mm -hmm. Morris said he was interested, but Evan clear that he would also have to take the water company. It wasn't just the utility. He had to do both, the water and the utility. Mm -hmm. he had ex uh, Morris had experience with other companies, but he had no experience with providing water. So the man was a novice when it came to providing water. And the challenge of the city of Ithaca with its hillsides and its you know differences in elevation and having to get the water to the campus was a real challenge for someone who didn't have experience and with him not having any experience it really was not a good thing. The proposition was complicated by the water needs of the hillside and the campus. Um, but Evan's brother, brother-in-law, Minders Van Cleef, who was the founder of the Ithaca Trust Company mm -hmm. and a member of the Cornell Board of Directors and fraternity that they all belong to, um, they got together, they worked on the financing, Morris petitioned the Cornell board and because of his network of friends and the in the finance areas and Fisk and Robinson bond dealers they were hesitant to invest but they went ahead and did it and so Morris um, the Treman family had over 10 times the bonded indebtedness allowed by the company charter so that $250,000 bond debt was greater than what they had had, had the right to do so it was kind of a financial albatross, probably, mm -hmm. at that point. And then Van Cleef wrote to F. Stanwood Mencken, who was a Wall Street lawyer and a fraternity alumni, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and insisted that Fisk and Robinson should go the investment. So it was like this whole good old boys network. They had people in investments. They had people in banking. They had people in the legal field. They had people all around them who were pushing this this situation, and it was not a good deal. So it was like skull and bones. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Right. So eventually Fisk and Robinson, the, the, the bond people, backed out because they knew that it was going to be a really costly thing to try to solve the water shortage. And so Morris was forced to look for the $100,000 that they pulled out somewhere else. And Cornell University Board finally approved the money to be given to the, that the gas and water company would go to Morris, and he got his wish. So Cornell then stepped in because of their alumna status as members of their fraternity, and mm-hmm. they just all kind of came together and did it. So the plan was to install a dam at, at Six Mile Creek, which is on the south end of Ithaca, mm-hmm. to supply the campus and other areas of town with water. A local engineering firm called Tucker and Vincent was contracted by the Waterworks to build the dam. Um, the owners were also alumni of the Chai, frater- Chai Phi fraternity. Chi? So it was like keeping it in the community. Is it Chi? Yeah, Chi Phi, excuse okay. me. Okay. Yes. <laughs> C-H-I. Okay. That, that's Chi Phi or Chi Phi? Chi Phi. Chi Phi. You know, whatever. <laughs> Patreon. Patreon. Yeah, well, yeah. Potato, it's Greek. You know. It's all Greek to Anyways. me. <laughs> there you go. It's all Greek. <laughs> so in order to cut the cost for the company, they hired mostly low-wage Italian workers. And the vast majority of the workers were known to have emigrated from a region of Italy where typhoid was very common. So these workers were not ill, but they were carriers of the disease. Mm-hmm. And then they did not engage in the waste management at the construction site. People who did inspections at the construction site, even after the project or during the project, there was a professor from Cornell named Varanis Moore and one of his colleagues, Emil Schimmel, and they were surveying the, t- the site where the construction took place. And it says the rocks and the woods and near the edge of the stream are reported to have been thickly sprinkled with human excrement. That's and the gross. stream itself directly received much of the Yeah. So they were just going wherever. They didn't have outhouse facilities that were adequate. And this condition was witnessed by Shimo in the fall of the year prior to the outbreak. Mm-hmm. And Fall Creek provided water for us at this time and passed through farming territory. So it was nearly as dirty as Six Mile Creek. So the, both the creeks coming in to supply water for the, for the, um, the campus were contaminated. Mm-hmm. The professor suggested a filtration plant be built or that they should draw water from artesian wells to supply the campus. Cornell President Sherman released the findings to the public a few days later in the Cornell Alumni Magazine. So this was just like complete pure negligence on the part of, of these parties who were the owners, who were the, the campus representatives, everybody. It was just a, a complete just ignoring all of the things that were reported. And um, and it, it's so sad because these people lost their lives because of negligence. That sounds familiar. Um, uh, let me ask you this. Now, Yeah. who was pooping on the creek? Was it the people who lived there or was it the workers or what? I'm not sure. 
the Italian workers, the workers who were building the dam. Okay. They had very limited outhouse facilities, and so the people didn't want to use the outhouses because they weren't maintained, and so they just went wherever they wanted to go. And that's what caused the, the contamination. There's nothing like an unmaintained outhouse to make right. your day. Even porta potties, I don't like them either. Right. <laughs> they're, they're just gross. Yeah. Okay, so we've got a lot of greed and money making and back channeling here. The good old boy. Now. So the President Sherman released those the the findings to the public, and even as the students and residents of the community were dying, Sherman attempted to contain the panic to silence the outcry because people knew what caused it because they had that documentation that it was from the contamination, the fecal contamination mm -hmm. but yet they really didn't respond. So then they ordered boarding houses who boarded students to uh, to boil water that they used for cleaning, cooking and consumption under the penalty of losing their student residence but compliance was very spotty and the epidemic continued. And Sherman finally agreed to allow students to leave the campus without penalty. And many went home only to perish in the presence of their families. So they went home, but then they died when they got home because they were already infected because the incubation time was two weeks. And they probably also gave it to their families. What I was reading about Cornell at that time was that they that their students all stayed in town. They didn't, the article I read from the newspaper at the time said that they're they because of the fire that they didn't have an active dormitory on Cornell so all of the students were down in the city right they mm -hmm. stayed in boarding houses and private residences which had private wells which were not well maintained and when they tested the wells there was a high level of contamination in the wells too mm -hmm. so the illness it brought on raging fever sweats delirium and often ended with intestinal perforation and hemorrhage. So a lot of these people were dying of like a colitis, a ulcerative colitis. And many of them were treated at the Cornell Infirmary, which was run by nurses and allopaths, but they had no physician on board or on staff. So this was just basically caring for these people's symptoms, not having any kind of medical, you know, pharmaceutical medical stuff going on. And there was a lack of clean water for drinking and for washing and cleansing. So they already had the contamination, and then these people were not even able to be kept clean and and cared for or given fresh water because there wasn't any water available for them. Yeah. Let me let me talk real quick about the the laborers. In the Cornell Daily Sun in February of 1903, there was two doctors that were researching it, Moore and Charno. But they asserted that the hypothesis yes. of water contamination by laborers at the dam was not conclusive because they couldn't find any of the laborers that had typhoid fever. And a lot of them had already to return to their homes before they started looking. But those are the same two that found the, excre the, the excreta at the site. Right. Um, Moore and Chameau. And so they couldn't conclusively say it because... The people were carriers, which they didn't really understand at that point, I think. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until shortly in, in that time period that they actually discovered what an asymptomatic carrier, someone who was previously infected who continued to be able to, to transmit the disease. Mm -hmm. And so they couldn't conclusively say was that contamination, but that is what caused it. 
Well, and there was there was about 2,700 students at Cornell at the time, and, and one-third of them, at least, mm-hmm. went home after the outbreak, possibly taking it with them. The thing is, you know, because all the ill, the people who were ill and caring for them in the infirmity, in the local hospitals, and in people's private homes, there was not enough caregivers, and so the medical system was completely overloaded. Mm-hmm. There was no way to keep up with of infections, which is something that, you know, recently we've, we've seen something similar to that with COVID where they wanted to make sure they had enough hospital beds and enough equipment and mechanical ventilators and things to be able to care for people who were infected with COVID. Well, there was 57 sick, sick students at the university infirmary and its annexes, and there was 50 trained or skilled nurses to take care of them. Now, those are just the students who were in the university infirmary, not the people who were sick in the village, in the town. And the people who were admitted in the hospital and the ones who were cared for in homes. So there was a lot more people to care for than I think they had people to care, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. But if you think about having 50 people on staff at the infirmary, you would have to staff it 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. You would have to have food for those you would have to have uh, hygiene opportunities, you know, all those things. So mm-hmm. it was definitely understaffed, even at 50 people. It would have still, still been very understaffed. Right. And that, like I said, the 50 students was just at the university complex, not at the local hospital. The, the sad part about it is is just the flippant way in which this was handled. The epidemic was raging, and Morris and his associates attended a social function on campus, and it was a, a ball, a spring ball, and they carried on life as usual. And Morris's disregard for the seriousness of the epidemic, which would have could have easily been prevented by a filtration system proposed by the city council and others in the community, was never prosecuted or punished in any way. Mm-hmm. There, there was no censure. There was nothing. The protection of Morris and his reputation and the deadly neglect of proper sanit- sanitation at the dam site were glossed over even as people were sickened and died in the community. So mm-hmm. it's just the the privilege, uh, just the, the gall of someone to do that and not even have to pay any penalty for it. But the city finally engaged the services of George Soper. Mm-hmm. He was a sanitation engineer, and it brought him into the, the, the community to help contain the epidemic. And he was the man who was responsible for tracking down and quarantining typhoid Mary. He worked with the local professor, um, Mr. Chameau, Emile Chameau and Varenas Moore, mm-hmm. and then another one named Wetzel, the scientists that worked at Cornell to isolate and determine the cause of the infection. <clears throat> it was traced directly to the fecal contamination in private wells and that of Six Mile Creek, so around the creek and then the private wells in town. Soper began to systematically test private water sources and his recommendations were presented to the city. As a result, many wells were closed off and the use of water from Six Mile Creek was completely terminated. The epidemic was stopped, but the loss of life, particularly in young adults with small cho- and small children, was devastating to the community. And then I'll share a little bit about a local tavern owner whose name was Theodore Zink. Mm-hmm. He lost his only daughter to the epidemic and later he committed suicide by drowning himself in Cuba Lake. 
He bore the burden of great grief over the loss of his child, and many of the students who drank the contaminated water at his establishment on the commons. Other students went home, and they succumbed to the death, to death, um, being infected before they left. So, it was, it was a horrible thing because so many young people, you know, the number of students that died, the number of infants and children that died, and then people who were sickened and lost income and all of those things, the toll was devastating mm -hmm. and all because of greed. So let's talk about Mary Mallon. Mary Mallon was born in Ireland in 1869, a small village called Cookstown in Northern Ireland. She was in County Tyrone and it's one of Ireland's poorest areas. She emigrated to the United States as a teenager and she, um, she began working as a domestic and she went from family to family till she got into some wealthy families and then she finally got a job as a cook and cooks were paid much more than domestics especially Irish domestics at that time because during that period of time we had a lot of Irish immigrants in this country and a lot of Italian immigrants in this country and they were being discriminated against because they were new to the country and taking jobs that other people weren't doing. So she had a she had a case of a mild flu. What she didn't know was that it was typhoid. She went to work for a family, the Warren family, Charles Warren, in Long Island's Oyster Bay in 1906. And while she was there, she and the little girls that, that lived there, they made ice cream for a special day, peach ice cream. And because of her hand-washing habits, which were not real prevalent in that time anyways. They didn't have as the higher hygiene standards that we have now. So she wasn't washing her hands often enough. And the typhoid got into the ice cream. And they served the ice cream as dessert that evening. And a lot of people got sick later. Um, it says they'd, they had infected 22 people and one of the girls died. So after that, they started, after that, New York wanted to um, find out where that had come from. So that's when they hired Dr. Soper to come in with the health department and start looking and, and trying to track down where that infection had come from. And when they found out who, who it was, she became known as Typhoid Mary and the newspapers absolutely went, had a field day with that because there's all kinds of drawings of her. One of them has her like she's cooking, but instead of cracking eggs into a bowl, she's cracking skulls into a bowl. And they took her, not sick, but infected, and put her on North Brother Island, which was uh, an isolation island. And she was there with a dog, only a dog, for three years. She actually wrote a letter that said, you know, it's... it's it would be really nice if I could live somewhere where I'd have more company than this dog. And she eventually sued, and they think that she might have been bankrolled by William Randolph Hearst, but she eventually sued the New York City Health Department and, um, and got off of the island, but they made her promise not to work as a cook anymore. Mary Mellon's letter said, Why should I be banished like a leper and compelled to live in solitary confinement with only a dog for a companion? 
as I said, they she she got test results back and she found a private laboratory. She found a private laboratory where the the test that she sent came back as negative, and that's when she sued the health department for her freedom. Uh, they initially denied her petition, but uh, she kept up with it, and the legal fees they think were paid by William Randolph Hearst. She was back out in the community working and then um, and had pledged that she would not work as a cook again. However, in 1915, there was an outbreak of typhoid at Manhattan's Sloan Maternity Hospital. 25 workers, and it killed two of them. And it was traced back to the cook, Typhoid Mary, Mary Mallon. Now, the thing is that being a cook paid so much more that she was living... I mean, nobody wanted to hire her anyways because they was a f even as a domestic because they were afraid that they would get typhoid. But um, so she changed her name to Mary Brown and she went to work for this hospital. And after that, they found her. They saw she was the cause of it. And so they put her back on North Brother Island. And she spent 26 years, including the first three years so t so 23 more years as a prisoner in forced isolation on North Brother Island even though at that time there were hundreds of asymptomatic carriers who had been identified by the uh, by the health department in New York City walking around freely instead of being uh, exiled to an island like she was so this was a clear case of as far as the isolation goes it was a pretty clear case of um, discrimination because of her being Irish and discrimination of her because she was a woman and she everyone was focused on her because her name had made it into the papers so she was punished for being an asymptomatic carrier and making people sick and the other people who were doing the same thing were not being punished at all they leave them alone. She finally died on November 11th in 1938. Um, and it was not of typhoid. It was natural causes. So the here's the problem in the Mary Mallon story. And that is that isolation and quarantine are very difficult issues for the government to manage. Because in this case, the only one of the many people who should have been isolated was isolated. And in the case of the plague, in in Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year, he said that they would put people into quarantine. The families would be there with one sick member, and then they'd all get sick and die. But So what was happening was they put them in quarantine, and they would like go into the basement and dig out or sneak out and and they would leave and they would be contaminated nobody knew they were gone because nobody was checking on them they just assumed they were still in quarantine and it was spreading that way so so having the government try and quarantine people is a is a very iffy issue as far as your as far as your civil rights goes and the best that we do in this country is we ask people to self isolate which is different um, which means that they are responsible for making sure they don't spread the disease. And, and in the general, most people will do that. But when the government starts telling you, no, you have to 
be in quarantine, you have to stay in your house, you can't leave, or you have to go to this camp and live here until you, we find out if you're sick or not, or however they plan to do it. Um, it's, it's such a potential violation of civil rights and a potential for discrimination, which is exactly what happened to Mary Mallon. Um, it's, it's really difficult for emergency management folks to, and health, health department folks to figure out how to handle. Well, and I think you're seeing it on some level already in this country with the discrimination against church congregations who are not allowed to, to meet and they're being fined while down the street at Joe's Bar and Grill, they're meeting and not having any issues. So, you know, it, it definitely can be an overreach of power. And I think that's what we really have to watch out for. Because she refused to comply with their request, if she had just not gone to work in food service after that, maybe things would have been very different from her for her, that she wouldn't have been singled out. Because it was known that because she worked in food service and was contaminating people's food, that that was why people were dying. And so I think it's a really delicate balance, and I think it really has to go on a case-by-case -case basis. Maybe the other symptomatic carriers were not in a position where they handling other people's food and, you know, contaminating sources of water or yeah. whatever. Well, I'm not sure. So. I'm not sure what the other, what the other carriers did, but you got to consider back then that when you're working, when you're trying to get work as an Irish woman in New York City in 1903, it's extremely difficult and you don't want to starve to death. And so that's why she went back into doing the food service because it paid her more and it allowed her to live in suitable housing instead of living in a tenement having more money to survive on and that money was still at survival level even a dollar a week made a huge difference in how you su survived so you know it's it's like yes yeah, she was told not to do food service but that was how she made her living and so she could either starve or take something where she had to, I don't know, wasn't cooking, but that was her specialty. So I can see why she went back to it, because they weren't paying her to stay home and away from that. They weren't paying her the difference between that and sewing in a sweatshop. So, you know, that's, that's another thing is, you, you know, you can say that in general that, well, people need to quarantine, but then... You look at even now, people need to work. They need to pay their rent. They need to feed their families. And, and when you tell them right. not to do that because of the disease, you either need to let them do what they need to do or you need to provide them with the, the subsistence level assistance that they would be getting if you expect them to follow your orders. Right. But I don't think that government's pockets are deep enough to do that on the kind of scale that they're doing it right now. But you know what? You have to prioritize. We've got money that goes all different kinds of places in this country. Places that are good, places that are bad, places that are stupid. And and we just need somebody who is in the lead who can say, okay, instead of, you know, having this state quarantine and then later this state quarantine and playing whack-a-mole with this disease, they need to have a leader who says the entire country is going to stay home for the next eight weeks and we will send you money to get food and to pay your rent. 
for eight weeks. And by the end of the eight weeks, they should have been able to identify all of the people who have the disease. And then those people can isolate and try to get the try to curb the spread of the disease. You can't curb the spread of the disease when people with the disease are free to go here and there and everywhere. So, and you can't force them to stay home. But if there's a coordinated plan that shows that it has an end, then you can, you can ask them to stay home and most of them will. The thing is right now we're on the 172nd day of the 15 days to flatten the curve. So people are only going to do the same thing for so long because they see it's not actually effective. Do you know how many active cases there are in New York right now? You don't know? I don't know. Not right this moment. No. Okay. Yeah. But it's, because it's only, there was only 420 hospitalizations as of Monday of this week. And those are last people week. who have been concurrently in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so the infection rate, they have spiked a little bit because of the return of the universities. They had to shut Oneana, uh, SUNY Oneana back down. Yeah, they shut Syracuse down. They were talking about shutting Cornell back down, but they haven't reached the case level that they were going to do that. So, And the thing is, compliance is huge. People will do it if you give them a good reason and an end date or a goal. They'll do it. But and once you get the caseload down to where it's in the in the 10 to 20 percent range, and instead of having an epidemic, what yeah. you have is outbreaks, and you can deal with an outbreak in a small area much more easily. Fewer people have to be isolated. It's there's much more testing can be done more rapidly. They can find out exactly where the disease is and snuff it out. But when everybody everybody everywhere has been exposed to this disease, you can't stop it without shutting people down for the, the length of the incubation periods. Um, the people that initially had it and then anybody who caught it from them while they were in isolation. And the, the medical practice of quarantining healthy people is not, not appropriate because that weakens the immune system. People need to be exposed to some level of virus, germ, out, outdoor exposure because without that, the immune system becomes weakened. And so it's actually producing more potential for keeping people who are healthy quarantined and disinfected to the point where there's no bacteria or viruses in their environment. The, the, the immune system grows because of exposure. So you can't create antibodies if you're not getting some measure of exposure. And that's not... Yeah, but when it's killing killing the percentage of people that it's killing you can't just go and and expose everybody to it you're going to have to do that slowly and and like ebola because ebola was absolutely insane in africa several years ago and and they couldn't stop people from moving around when they finally clamped down and got it slowed down they managed to get rid of it in that area that it, in which it had been endemic and um, but when Ebola came to this country, we knew immediately who it was. We knew where they were and we clamped down and it didn't spread any farther. And see, you got to get to a point where you you're not having a pandemic, you're having outbreaks 
And the only way to do that is going to have to be a massive waiting period to try and get it under control and identify where the outbreaks are. They found out too that this that this disease, it's not just pneumonia, it's actually there's like a hydrogel that forms inside the alveoli. So there's, even if you, no matter how much oxygen you pump right. in there, it won't permeate that gel layer. And that's why this is so deadly. That's ARDS, that's the, it's a super inflammation. I was reading also that it, that they're starting to decide that it's a vascular disease because there's a lot of irritation and there's also when you do an autopsy there is a ton of blood clots right. all over the body. So they're looking at it now, thank God they're doing it from a different angle, uh as a vascular disease and seeing about well, treating it that way. It's it's one side or the other of the spectrum because some people have coagulation issues where they're not coagulating, not not stopping bleeding, and other people are having blood clots. Because I know of a person who had it who's having severe bleeding yeah. problems from, and the doctor said that they're seeing that in patients who have, have had COVID, that they'll go and have a nosebleed that lasts for four days. And the doctor said, well, it finds the weakest area in the vascularity, hmm. and because of the, the platelet issues that you develop with it, you either get too much coagulation or don't get enough coagulation. Mm -hmm. And so they're experiencing they're like life-threatening right. nosebleeds. So we're actually looking at something that's, that it's, uh, the more we look at it, the more we see that it seems to involve right. the circulatory system, the vascular system. You're they're seeing in pediatric patients the arteritis that they're seeing that's caused the deaths in the pediatric patients. The coronary arteries are, mm -hmm. are occluding, and they end up dying from from coronary artery disease at, you know, infants. So so looking at it from a vascular standpoint is probably a really good mm -hmm. starting point. And as far as typhoid goes, that's... It, even with typhoid, sorry, though, it attacked the epithelial layer in the intestinal tract. And so that epithelial, uh, they get a, a, cell, a cytokine mm -hmm. storm, which is a, a hyperreaction within the cell, that produces severe inflammation, which produces the body's inability to, to deal with it. And so then you end up with the, the kind of death toll that you have, you know, with something like typhus, because you have that people with the hemorrhagic yeah. intestinal issues and then the, the fevers and the, the meningitis. So it's definitely something that crosses through the regular, the regular mm -hmm. pathways of the immune system and is super inflammation. So thankfully, though, typhoid now can be treated by antibiotics. And hopefully in the future, the, the, uh, the COVID will be able to be treated by, I don't know about um, a vaccine coming anytime soon, but if they start treating them with antivirals, they have started some of those tests. And some of the antivirals for AIDS seem to help. So we'll hope that they go on with that. The plasma from people who have been infected. I know a man who went from being on the ventilator, you know, proning on the ventilator and terminal to being up and walking and back around again because they gave him the plasma treatment, the plasmapheresis, where they take the plasma of an infected person and put mm -hmm. it into someone um, who's, who's recovered, a recovered infected person into a person who's got active disease. And that stops it 
or at least produces the antibodies they need. We need to use all the weapons that we can find on this. This is a war, and we need to have all the weapons that are effective. Well, tell you what, I actually have to go help someone with their fractions. So um, I just want to tell you, thank you for doing this. It was really interesting. Just as a little summary, the tragic toll of this epidemic is even more poignant because there were so many ways it could have been prevented. The technology was available to avoid the contamination by producing a sand filter or filtration system for the city's water force source, but it was circumvented and ignored by the few men who chose to benefit themselves and their peers. The enrichment was deemed to be more important than human health and life, which unfortunately is the case in a lot of disasters. Well, it's starting with the starting with our very first disaster, Love Canal. Right. Right. And to this one, which has been two years now. Hi. We've been doing this for two years. Happy anniversary. Hey, well, congratulations. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. <laughs> anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't go on, I don't think. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, I want to say thank you to all our listeners. It's really been great doing this, and I hope you're enjoying it as much as we are. If you have any special requests, be sure and contact us. We're at, uh, you can contact me at kate at disastertales.com. You can contact Barb at barb at disastertales.com. We've also, if you go to the Disaster Tales podcast fans site and, and join us there on Facebook, we've actually got some disaster-specific artwork that's available as T-shirts and on cups and as a 11 by 14 print. So take a look there and uh, we just love to hear from you and don't forget our patreon page we have a patreon page disaster tales <laughs> and we have a web page disastertales.com there you go all right okay. well, you have a good week well, thank you thank you you too all right <laughs> we'll bye. see you later bye Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Our website is www.disastertales.com. Music by Stephanie Cerny. Please feel free to give us a rating. We'd be happy to know what you think. Today's disaster tip is about hand washing. Proper handwashing habits are one of the most important tools in fighting infection and disease. Soap is slippery and allows germs and viruses to be slid off your hands. And as Barb mentioned in a previous episode, it can break down the lipid envelope around the viruses and germs and kill them. Remember to lather up for 20 seconds or the length of two verses of the Happy Birthday song. You stay safe out there. <laughs>